by a show of hands, how many of you grew up going to church? Just kind of curious. Keep your hands up if you grew up going to church and you regularly attended Sunday school. Okay, so that's a lot of us in this room. One more question for us. How many of you are familiar with this song then in Sunday school? The Lord told Noah to build him an arky arky. The Lord told Noah to build him an arky arky and build it out of barky barky. So rise and shine and give God the glory glory. Rise and shine and anyone heard that song before? Oh, a lot of us. So you all will know quite well what I'm talking about as we go through this service. Many of you have had the privilege then of being in Sunday school, and I do not want to, by my comments, throw Sunday school under the bus. I'm sure that a lot of you learned wonderful things about God's Word. But today's message, if you wanted to give a different title than the story of Noah that's in your bulletin, I would entitle it, Ten Things You May Have Missed About Noah in the Flood in Sunday School. This is our top 10 list. We'll start from 10 and we'll move our way down to number one. And if you're wondering, there are 10 points to your message? Yes, there are. And I do hope to get us out on a normal time. 10 things you may have missed about Noah and the flood. And I'm not going to read the whole story. We're going to cover chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9 this morning. And as you'll see in your bulletin, if you look to the back of it, we're going to start moving at that pace throughout the rest of of Genesis. So we'll look at chapters 10 and 11 next week, and the story of Abraham in the week after, and then Isaac, and so forth. So we'll start moving more swiftly as we get the big picture idea of these larger narratives anyway. I don't know if it's best suited for us to go as slow as we did through the first three chapters for the rest of Genesis anyways. But for this morning, 10 things that you may have missed, and these 10 things, as I don't read you and recount you the story that most of you have heard either through song or a familiar story for all of us, the story of the flood and the story of Noah and his ark. It's a story that even though we have heard it in Sunday school growing up, many other cultures in ancient history have similar stories about floods. So I'm assuming that even if you didn't grow up in Sunday school, you maybe have heard of this story or another one like it. All over the world, ancient civilizations have told flood stories. And so it seems as if this is a part of our world's history, whether we're Christian or Jewish, Muslim, or some other faith. The flood seems to be something that's recounted and recorded historically all over the place. So our familiarity with it sometimes might breed, well, I know what the story is. So that's why here's 10 things, starting with number 10, the animals. If we look at chapter 7, verses 21 through 24, I want us to see what happened in the flood story. Chapter 7, verses 21 through 24. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds. Livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He, it's an important word there, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face 
of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. When you read a passage like that, I ask the question, this week at least, if not many other times in my life, why in the world is this a popular children's story? Some of you may have heard of a modern comedian named Jim Gaffigan. He, in in one of his comedic sketches, asks the question, hey, Easter's the day Jesus rose from the dead. What should we do? He then responds and says, how about eggs? What? What does that have to do with Jesus rising from the dead? Okay, let's hide him. Then as he has this conversation within himself, he says, I don't follow your logic. Don't worry, there's a bunny. I bring that up because I think that's kind of the way I view Sunday school teachers. What were they thinking when they're sitting around saying, all right, what are we going to teach the kids? How about the flood? Really? I don't follow your logic. That's frightening. Or have we just said, don't worry, there's a bunny. There's animals. Seriously, though, isn't that pretty much what we've done? There's bunnies, there's animals, there's giraffes. It'll be friendly to the kids. So we paint murals. We have decorations, maybe even our home of Noah and the ark. It's cute. It's cuddly. We sing. Here comes the arky, arky, floody, floody. But friends, this is not very funny. This is weighty. Did you hear what I just read? All flesh, most of the animals died, kids. Cute bunnies drowned. Birds died. Animals died. People died. This is a story of judgment. I don't recommend this right before bedtime, especially if you want to tell them, the true story of the flood. This is a story of judgment, not just for these people. This is a story of judgment and a warning for us as well. Which brings me to number nine. Sin. Sin is something you may have missed in your Sunday school story growing up. At chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, Monica just read these scriptures to us. We see exactly why the flood came. The Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a devastating verse. The Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts in his heart was only evil all the time. Could it be more universal and total? In Sunday school class, we should ask the question, kids, what all did God allow on the ark? Answer, animals. What else did God allow on the ark? Noah and his family. What else did God allow on the ark? Sin. You see, this is the point that I think sometimes we miss. The reason for the flood is sin. It goes onto the ark, and friends, it comes off the ark. One of the dangers I have 
I think we have as we look at this story and we read those verses in particular, verses 5 through 7, and see the evil of man's heart as we start to look back and say, oh, they must have been really bad. But, you know, we have been morally superior. We've advanced. We don't certainly have hearts that are evil like this. You don't even have to leave the Noah flood story. Turn your Bibles to chapter 8, verse 20 and 21, and notice what happens as they come off the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. Did you notice that little phrase? This is something you might miss if you just hear the Sunday school story. They get off the ark and God says that man's heart is still evil from his youth. So sin got onto the ark, and sin came off of the ark, which means all of us have inherited from our youth sin. We are dead in our sins. We are children of wrath. We are slaves to our sin. We, on our own power and strength and our own moral abilities, cannot please God. Apart from God, we are just as we have heard read in these scriptures. Only evil, continually, all the time. Is that what you think of your sin? Does the words total depravity seem like that's a little too intense? Total depravity can be quite nicely illustrated with this bottle of water. It doesn't mean that this whole bottle of water is poison. If your life was represented by this bottle of water, and you were to say, that looks good to drink, but if I drop one drop of poison in this bottle, anyone going to drink it? Because it infects everything in this bottle. It only takes one sin, and everything in your life totally is affected by that sin. So friend, I don't think of you as being somebody that's just full of poison and sickness in your heart. But I do think of all of us because of God's word being very clear about this. All of us are totally affected by the sin in our hearts and our lives. This is not different that some moral improvement has been made over the course of time and history. Do we not just need to look at the news? Read what happens in airports this week? Read what's going on around the world? Listen to stories of Women trafficking in the Middle East, we are full of evil in this world from our youth. If you think lightly of your sin, we should look to the flood and hear something very different. We are an evil generation. We have sin in our hearts. And if the flood story doesn't do it, then friend, look at the cross of Jesus. This is what God thinks of our sin. The penalty and punishment of sin here in the flood is devastating, but it compares very little to the devastating cost of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
This is why we sang that song earlier. I know it's probably new to many of you. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Verse 3 went like this. You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose your evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's appointed, son of man and son of God. We just sang that. Ye who think of sin but lightly, mark the anointed son of God and his sacrifice for our sin. That's how bad your sin is. And all of us in the whole world are really that bad. Really? All of us? What about Noah? Number eight. Noah was a righteous, blameless guy. He's good, right? Chapter six, verse nine. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Sounds good. And it honestly seems to be that he is a good guy. In fact, I do think there's a sense to which you should learn about Noah's character in this story, and you should want to model your life after Noah. There are many good things to take away for you personally as you reflect on the character of Noah in the flood story. Look at chapter 6, verse 22, and notice the repetition from this point onward. All that God said, Noah did this, and all that God commanded him. Drop your eyes down to chapter 7, verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 16, and those who had entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded, and the Lord shut him in. Everybody in this flood story that centered around Noah and the animals, are all obeying God just as he commanded. Friends, I think that's something that we should obey or look to obey like Noah did. We should see this as a good example. We should see his example of turning his life against the stream of the current culture and all the waves and the wind that's kind of against him and he's still fighting his way against everybody else. I think that that's commendable for our day as well. Anyone ever feel lonely like they're the only Christian around? Anybody ever feel like obeying God is going against the the tide of everyone else around me? Look to Noah. What a wonderful example he is of a righteous, blameless man. Now, when it says blameless, don't get confused and say, oh, he was perfect. Blame, no blame whatsoever. It just means that there was no accusations against his character of being like this awful, terrible dude. He was a good guy, and it seems like he was. But was he a perfect guy? Does blameless mean he had no sin in him? Yeah, I think we kind of already covered that, but really, how does the story end? This is the real part that I think is left out in Sunday school. We've mentioned it in previous weeks, but if you're here with us for the first time, look at chapter 9, verses 20 and following. This is the way Noah's story ends. This awesome dude, this righteous, blameless guy, the guy that's chosen to be saved out of everybody else, How about this, if this was the end of your life story in the scriptures? Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay naked or uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders, walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. 
Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall be he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The end. Not so cool. Like, I get drunk, pass out naked, and my sons find me, and they don't tell us what happened, but it seems as if he's teasing or making fun of or pointing it out in such a way that brings humiliation on the father so that the other brothers don't play part in this humiliation, and so they cover him up in a sign of dignity and honor. Do you see how Noah's life ends? Drunkenness back then, nor today, should be acceptable or commendable for anybody. This is not something that we should be excited about. Oh, see, Noah got drunk. He was a blameless guy. That's, you're missing the point. Even Noah, even Noah was sinful and messed up, and made mistakes. Which brings us to point number seven. Why then was Noah chosen? If you want one little word, it's what we've been following so far. There were animals, that was ten. Nine was sin, eight was Noah, seven, grace. Why was Noah chosen? Grace. I mean that literally. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This Hebrew word for favor is the same word that you and I know of as the word grace. Noah, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why was Noah chosen because God was gracious to him. One of the interesting things you need to realize is that at the beginning of the story is grace toward Noah. The very center of the story, Gordon Winham has a commentary on Genesis, and in his commentary he makes it clear, I think, that this story has a chiastic inverted structure. We've talked about that a lot in the past. I won't show you all of those details, but right in the center of the chiasm is chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made wind blow over the earth and the waters subside. The center of the story of the flood is God remembering Noah. His grace toward Noah. And how does the story then end? Not the naked part, but chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the field. And as he keeps going in chapter 9, you see that right, starting in verse 8, he says in verse 9, I am going to make a covenant with you, you and your offspring after you, and every living creature that is with you. I will establish my covenant with you, verse 11, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, etc., etc. A covenant, grace in the beginning, grace in the middle, grace at the end. 
The story of why God chose Noah was not because of his moral superiority or we would not have seen this naked, drunken state. It's because of God's grace. And this is true really of everybody in the Bible and this is true of you. Abraham was not chosen because he was great. He gives up his wife twice and says, ah, she's my sister. Fellas, that does not go well when you come home at night. I started wondering, maybe this makes sense of why Sarah wasn't getting pregnant, because she doesn't want to be with a guy like that. You're going to sell me out? Yeah, here, take Hagar. I don't want to be with you. This, this is not cool. What about Moses? What about David and Paul? Think of any hero in the Bible, and do, not you, do you not see huge, terrible flaws? But in spite of that, God is gracious to them. And this is true for you and for me. If any of us are good, it is because of God's grace. I love the summary statement of Paul, the guy who killed Christians. Oh yeah, that guy who killed Christians and then was turned into the Christian converter. The guy who started most of the churches and wrote much of the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he uses this summary statement to talk about himself and I think this should be applied to each of us as we think about ourselves and God's grace. For I am the least of the apostles and unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You see how he's feeling the weight of, I was a Christian killer. I really don't deserve to be where I am right now. And neither do you or I. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. What beautiful words. What helpful words. Do you want to grow in godliness? It will take grace-driven effort. All effort that you see Paul talking about here, on the contrary, even though I worked very, very hard, it was not me, it was God within me. He did it. This is why as Christians we can't boast about anything. He saves us from beginning, he keeps us to the end. It's God, it's his grace from beginning to the middle to the end. John Newton said it best, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be. But still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Can you say that about your life? Can you look with discouragement and sadness at your sin and see, I'm not what I ought to be, I'm not what I want to be, I'm not what I hope to be, but by God's grace, I'm not who I used to be. I am who I am because of Jesus Christ. That's number seven, grace. Six, the ark. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 6, verses 14, 15, and 16. Genesis chapter 6, 14, 15, and 16. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, or cypress wood, some translations say. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in it inside. Make it with a lower, second, and third deck. Some people talk about how the ark has very specific dimensions, similar to the way the tabernacle has specific dimensions, and then eventually the temple. So maybe this could be seen as a temple, kind of 
parallel or type, maybe. I'm not so sure. Either way, I still think we should ask the question, what is an ark? And most of you will probably think because of Sunday school, well, it's a big boat. What else do you think it is, Pastor Phil? No, it's not. It's not a boat. It didn't say build me a boat. It's literally not the word here, and it's not used anywhere else to talk about a boat. It's really literally a box or a chest. That's what an ark is. A different word that the only time we see it used elsewhere in the Bible is when Moses is placed down into a ark. Very same word used here as he is being as a little baby, preserved from the judgment of Pharaoh. So we see the ark is a place of safety. It is a box for protection. And it could be all kinds of things. It could be a big thing that you put a box of animals and people in it to save them from the protection of God's wrath in a flood, or it could be a little wooden box put a little baby in. One thing we do know about this ark is that it's big, like really big, if you need the quick translation of these measurements of cubits, because you're not used to that metric system of cubits, think one football field and then another half a football field, that long in terms of its length. And that will start to give you a sense of its size. Now I want to ask you the question, do any of you and even all of us collectively have enough resources to build something that big? If you do, then we should have a new church really soon. <laughs> but you don't, so we're just going to keep renting for now. The point is this. We don't know this for sure, but it seems as if Noah, at the very least, is extremely resourceful and probably really, really wealthy. Now, this is something that you may have missed as you think about the sheer size of this. We don't get really any details about any of these things, but what we do know is how big the ark is. So could you imagine spending all of this time and then probably finances or resources and energy into this big, giant box in the middle of a desert? Of course people thought you were crazy if you did something like this. But I want to ask you the question, are you willing to spend all that you have here on this earth because you A, want to obey God, and B, you want to walk with Him because He is more precious than life itself? Again, I see Noah here as an exemplary model for us, that he, in obedience, obeyed. And even though he did not see any floods coming anytime soon, he started building and using his resources, and he had faith in God's word. And he survived the flood, even though he lost all his material possessions, including the ark. I mean, it's not like he lived in it the rest of his days. He put everything he had into this ark, and even if he didn't, he would have lost everything anyway. What a wonderful picture for you and for me as we look at the ark to see life with God is better than all the possessions that the world can offer. Do you believe that today? Do you see how countercultural it would have been for Noah to build this ark the way he did? Its size, its location, its purpose. It would take faith. It would take faith in believing in something that's beyond this world. And my friend, I think all of us need to ask, do you have that kind of faith today? Number five, the flood. Chapter 6, verse 17 says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. 
everything that is on the earth shall die. Chapter 7, verse 17 and following says that the floodwaters continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily, this is astonishing, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Whoo! Big flood, friends. Which then begs the question, what? Was there really a flood that covered the whole earth? Seriously? You Christians believe this? Or are you like some other Christians or skeptics and say, it's probably just a big local flood? What do you think? You could take a third option and just say, well, it's just a metaphor. It didn't actually happen. It's just a story for us so we can learn that God is a God of justice and judgment. Three options. This really happened over the face of the whole earth. It was a local flood, or maybe it just never happened at all. I did hear from some geologists this week, but I think that's probably not going to help us so much. I've heard some Christian geologists, conservative Christian geologists, say, well, we can tell by looking at things like the Grand Canyon, a flood happened. Or we can tell by looking at marine fossils from, you know, fish and sea creatures on mountains. What else can you do but explain that a flood must have happened when you see things like this? But you'll have other geologists who are Christians who say, no, here's this reason and that reason why this could have happened. I don't know geology. The Bible doesn't seem to be focused on geology. So here are six questions or comments about this big issue. Did the flood really happen over the whole earth? First, this is a statement, not a question, but you could think of it this way. We don't know the baseline for what the world was like before the flood started. We have no descriptions of what the world was like. So by studying the world now and saying, well, this is what it looks like now, the flood couldn't have happened. Well, you don't know what it was like then and what a potential global flood could have done to change what we now know as the current earth. So that's just a beginning statement of thought or question. What was the baseline for what the earth was like in terms of its continents and the water and how much water there was and ice caps and other things? We don't know. So don't defiantly and dogmatically say, no, it couldn't have happened that way. You don't really know. This story is told from the perspective of God, not Noah. So God's giving us details about things that only he would know. Second, God promises in chapter 9 through his covenant to not do this again. If it was a local flood, local floods have happened again. Tsunamis have devastated whole civilizations and people. So that doesn't make a lot of sense just reading the text to say that the flood was only local, and I'll never do this local flood again. Well, yeah, you kind of did, God. You allowed that to happen a lot of times. Thirdly, why would God bring animals on the ark if it's just a local flood? If he's trying to preserve the animals, why not just migrate them over somewhere in Asia or Africa or Europe, far away from where this flood is? There's no need to care about the animals here. Fourthly, the flood in 2 Peter is compared as a type of final judgment that will happen on the whole world. So read 2 Peter chapter 3 later. Jot that down. And it seems to say that in the same way that the 
flood covered the whole earth and judgment came over the whole earth, so God will bring fire over the whole earth and purify the earth with judgment. So 2 Peter makes it seem like this is a global flood, not a local flood by its comparison. Number five, does it seem like God's salvation that we see all through the Bible is about local people's or universal global peoples. Is not the whole point of Genesis 1 through 11 to tell us the story that when we get to the nation of Israel, that God is not a tribal, small God of one little people group. He is the global God who creates the heavens and the earth. He is the global God who floods and judges the whole earth. He is the global God. That's kind of the theme of Genesis 1 through 11. So therefore, is God's salvation local to just the people of Israel, or is it universal because the local God of Israel is also the global God of the nations? Lastly, whatever view you have about this flood, I would encourage you to realize that it should probably match the language and however you view Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 match up with Genesis 1 and 2 all the time, which brings us to point number four. This story of the flood is a story of decreation. Dozens and dozens of parallels are here in Genesis 6 through 9 with Genesis 1 and 2. You should think about this story as Noah is a new Adam. God is starting all of humanity over that he is decreating. Remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that the waters covered the face of the earth and the Spirit of God hovered over the deep. Genesis 1, 2. It's as if he's saying we're going back to the very beginning and the waters will cover the face of the earth and the Spirit of God and one little box boat is going to hover over the face of the deep. That's the picture. If you see the way these two texts work together, that would take a whole nother sermon, but just realize that as you compare and contrast, the language between the two repeats itself, especially in chapter 9. If you want to just glance your eyes down and you see the ideas in chapter 9, a covenant is being made here. It's a covenant that is not a new covenant. It's a covenant that is being already established by God that was in the garden, as we talked about from weeks ago. We also see that you see this idea of being fruitful and multiply in chapter 9, verse 1. Where, where do you get the idea of being fruitful and multiply? We think, oh, where have I heard that before? Genesis 1, and so on and so forth. There's lots of those connections I could show you the rest of the day if you want to this afternoon. We can sit down and we can look at the parallels. But there's the point. This is a story of a new Adam or a decreation of creation, and therefore the theology of new creation starts here. God cares about his world, which brings us to point three. God's tears or his care or his heart. I think one of the most beautiful passages we have in this story is in chapter six, verses five through seven. Let's read it again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. 
the Lord regretted that he made, it grieved him, and I am sorry that I made them. What in the world's going on here? Theologically, this is a difficult question that we have to ask because it's here in our text. Does God change his mind? Is he like, oh man, that was a bad idea? Most commentators, some will say there's different ways to interpret these words, like translate them, but most commentators seem to agree that, and I think this is a very simple idea for us to get, God here is using what's called anthropomorphic language, which means God says in the scriptures, my right and mighty hand. Well, does God have a hand? No, he has no hand. He is invisible. The invisible God that we believe in is a spirit. So when you see in the scriptures hundreds of times, my hand, or I will put my feet on the earth as my footstool, literally God's feet aren't like sitting on the earth. It's anthropomorphic language to use human words and ideas to help us get what's going on in the idea of what's going on in God's heart or in his, his reign and rule as king. So translate that out. God hurts when he sees the evil on the earth. He is not the sort of God that is impersonal. He's not the sort of God that just starts the earth, creates it, spins it, and says, okay, have at it. I'm just going to use natural processes and not be involved with the earth. He is involved. He cares. This is, I think, one of the most beautiful things about this passage. Do you care about evil and suffering that's going on in the world? Does your heart break when you hear of stories earlier this morning of women being sold into slavery? Does your heart break when you hear of innocent people in an airport getting shot to the head by a random person? Do I need to go on? Does your heart break when you hear of suffering? This is terrible. Yes, our hearts break. If you have any sort of human being in you, then your hearts break when you hear of stories. And then there's your stories. Do your hearts not break when you think of your personal suffering and your family members and the people that you know and love? And so then we start to ask the question, but does God care? And this passage screams and shouts, yes, I care. Like, loudly, I care. I, I love this creation a lot. So what I love about this passage is that it doesn't say, and God was angry. No. He grieved. You see the difference? His heart broke in that moment as he looked out on the earth, the earth that he made, the earth that he loves. And look at the mess that it is in. If you think you care about evil and suffering, he cares so much more. And praise God that he actually is doing something about it. He has done something about it. He will do something about it. He currently is. So I don't think we should see this passage as God changing his mind and being schizophrenic and being like, oh no, that didn't work out. What should I do now? I'm the God that just doesn't know what to do. He's trying to help us get into his heart. And his heart is beautiful. Another thing I want you to see in terms of this is in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. I want you to see the, the language of God's poetic justice. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Have you got the idea? Corrupt? Corrupt? Like, it's all corrupt? Look at verse 13. And God said to Noah, 
I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will, and this is the idea. He says, I will corrupt them with the earth. It's the same word throughout all of those verses. You miss it because the translators give you different words, but if you were to put it this way, let's use the other word for destroy and read it this way. Now the earth was destroyed in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Because of the violence, the earth was destroyed. Evil in the heart, evil all around. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was destroyed, for all flesh has destroyed their way on the earth. Do you get the idea now? God's judgment is poetic justice. He is giving them what they already deserve and have. He is destroying the destroyed, is the way you would read it in the Hebrew. He is destroying the destroyed. It reminded me of the story in Exodus. Does it seem cruel to you that God would kill all the firstborn in Egypt? Or does it seem like beautiful, poetic justice of a God who cares? And he hears the voice of people crying out because their children are being killed. The story in Exodus begins with Pharaoh throwing babies into the river. So God says, I'll take your firstborn babies. All through the scriptures, there's these poetic justices where he is giving them exactly what they deserve. And that's exactly what I think we see here in chapter 6 is that the destroyed are being destroyed. They're already destroyed, and it grieves God's heart. Two, you may have missed this in Sunday school. You're very familiar with it, but you may have really missed what it means. Chapter 9, verses 12 and 13, if you want one word, it's rainbow. It's a big part of the Noah story, right? The rainbow. Chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set, and notice it doesn't say rainbow, but it says bow in the cloud, and that's probably referring to the rainbow. And when we look at a rainbow, what does a rainbow look like? It curves like this. But the word is not rainbow per se. The word is a military-like bow of an archer. He says, I am setting my bow, my military act of violence bow, to destroy things or people. I'm setting that not downward toward the earth anymore, but upward toward the heavens. Do you see what the rainbow is now? This you may have missed. We think of it as, oh, it's so pretty and colorful and different cultures of people today have stolen it for their identifying flag. No, no. This is an act of war. This is a war bow. And he is saying that this bow is pointing up toward heaven, and I will never point it down toward earth to destroy it again. Which brings us to the first and the most important thing that a lot of you may have missed. Any guesses? She got it. Jesus. The story's about Jesus especially if you get this bow thing that I just talked about. So there's a problem on the earth. Evil left the ark. Evil's still on the earth. Noah's getting drunk, laying naked in a tent. His sons are doing all kinds of childish things. And then we keep reading the story. It just gets worse and worse, and the spiral continues, and we'll see that more next week. And then here we are today. 
the plan of trying to remove evil by removing all of the bad people, we talked about this last week, but just leaving one good person. Yeah, that didn't work. In order to remove all evil means we have to remove all people, all of them, not even the good ones. Because even the good ones are flawed with even just one drop of sin that affects everything. So what's God going to do? He will take his bow and he will shoot it at himself. He will bring judgment on himself. The way he keeps this covenant is by letting the judgment of his bow fall on his own body. In other words, a way you could say it is Jesus is the new human because we need a whole new human race. And Jesus comes from heaven down on earth and he is God in flesh. He is perfect human. He is born of a virgin with no sin. He is blameless and righteous more than Noah and more than Moses and more than David. And he walked with God faithfully to the very end. No drunken fit episodes with Jesus, even though he was accused of it. And he would start a new family, not by physical birth, but he would start a new family where he would say, you must be born again by faith. And he would create a new covenant that is the fulfillment of the Noahic covenant and all previous covenants. And he would do this by dying on a cross as God's judgment waters rose over his head. To remove sin from our hearts and to bring salvation to the nations and the rest of the world, it would happen through judgment. This is why we can consider both the kindness and the severity of God this morning. We see God's kindness in the cross that he would offer for us forgiveness of sins and mercy and an opportunity to be a part of his new family, just like Noah and his family was to start over and create a whole new family. That project did not work, but the project of starting a new family where you change the very hearts of people from the inside out, that project has worked. And it has continued to work, and the church is that family. And you, my friend, are a part of that family if you, by faith, have put your faith and trust in Jesus alone. If you're here today and you're wondering, what does it mean to be a Christian? It's this. See Jesus Christ as your ark and climb up into it by faith. There was an ark made of wood, but many, many thousands of years later, there would be another ark of wood. This protective ark would be a cross. And this ark would also bring salvation through judgment as the judgment of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ. You and I get life and forgiveness and a new heart. Do you want that? Do you cherish that if you already have it? Is there anything better? I think it's worth giving all of our lives for it. God could not ask of us anything that would be too much because he has already given us way too much in his son, Jesus Christ. So climb by faith into the ark of wood called Calvary. Cling to the cross by your faith and receive the forgiveness of sins. And if you're a Christian today, stay at the cross, stay in the ark, and know that this story of Noah is really all about Jesus. Read 1 Peter 3 later today and realize that Peter just doesn't use this flood story to talk about coming judgment. He uses flood story to say, if you have been baptized upon your forgiveness of sins, that is the fulfillment of the flood story. Just in the same way that Noah was saved through water, so you and I are saved through literal physical water. As we're saved down into the water, 
our death to our sin and we rise up again out of the water, God saves us through judgment. That's the story of Noah. And I hope and pray that as we go through it, as we think about it, these 10 things will be helpful for us to understand it rightly. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks this morning for your word and for all our faithful Sunday school teachers, no matter how much of these details they did or did not teach us. We thank you, God, for the men and women who have faithfully held out God's word to us. Obviously, it did something useful because look at how many of us are still here. So God, we do want to give you thanks this morning for people who have taught your word and taught it faithfully. We do pray that we would grow in increasing humility as we sit under your word and we would not look to the traditions of men, but we look to your word alone as how we live our lives and how we understand who you are. And I pray that you guide all of us toward that end. We thank you for this salvation, salvation through judgment. We thank you that your wrath was placed on Jesus and that you and your grieved heart we're pleased to see the suffering of Christ. Thank you that you rejoice over that death on our behalf, that you can now look at us and rejoice and be glad about the new humanity that you have made through your church. Help us to be that by your Holy Spirit through grace-driven effort in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned earlier in the service, we're going to take the bread and the cup as an act of